Mark 5, 18 through 20, New Living Translation. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. But Jesus said, no, go home to your family and tell them everything the Lord has done for you and how merciful he has been. So the man started off to visit the ten towns of that region and began to proclaim the great things Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed at what he told them. Good morning, Boulderites. There would be no need for you to refer to me, for I'm from another place. But I think I can testify on behalf of Sam and Terry that this feels like a second home in a way. In fact, I was on my cell phone this morning, and I say the same thing every time I come to Boulder when I call her back home. Why don't we live here? No, I, we've got to move. We, we need to work in this place. This is a wonderful community. Japheth, what all of you are building here, people are paying attention. You need to hear that from someone on the outside. You are blessing spaces and places many, many miles from this one. So thank you. Thank you for the hard work you're doing. Thank you for the example that you are giving all of us. It encourages me. It encourages many of us because of what happens in this place. I did an experiment this past Thursday night. And I have to set a little context. I don't know what your family dinner table is like, but there's four members in our family. Alex and Nicole and our 10-year-old daughter, Audrey, and five-year-old son, William. And, and usually what happens is it's one big competition for who gets to control the conversation. And I'm not going to out anybody, but this is basically how it goes. One member, basically, if this person had control, would talk about American politics, golf, and what this person would do if $100,000 became available for the church. This person will dominate the conversation on those three subjects. Another member, another member of the family will talk nonstop about ridiculous, absurd exercise videos. Japheth, we have something in common. The kind that can kill you. New and exotic recipes that should be tried. And evergreen trees that ought to be planted in our yard. Dominate the conversation. Another member will talk about uh, the music of Taylor Swift, grandma's attic books, and everything surrounding her school. This is the whole conversation. And then the fourth member basically wants to talk about peregrine falcons, new ways of jumping into the swimming pool, and sword fighting. And we talk over each other. Thursday night, I did an experiment, and I intentionally said, I'm going to ask my kids about what they're reading, about their games, their technology, what they're into, and I'm going to focus completely on them. And I just started to fire away, and they, they started to open up, and I asked more and more specific questions, and I started to ask them things that they had never thought about, about their subject matter. I have never seen my kids more engaged in conversation than this past Thursday night. Dinner's over. I say to William, the five-year-old, uh, go get in the tub. It's time to get ready for bed. 
I will, Dad, he said, as long as you'll come with me and keep asking me questions. Think about that. The power of conversation, of being interested in what somebody else cares about. This is what the One Project Gathering, I think, is kind of about. This idea that we have a table, that we actually care about the other person, their stuff, what they're interested, their hopes, their dreams, what stresses them, the power of listening to one another. So let's begin here. Leviticus and her sisters, Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the sisterhood that we know as the Pentateuch, the first five books of our Bible, some of the most significant foundational material in the whole of Scripture, but also some of the most challenging, the river of regulations, all of the stipulations, the laws, the panoply of expectations can be overwhelming. In fact, people who say, I'm going to read the Bible through all the way, find their journey arrested prematurely, wandering in these books. I think the challenge is that we forget the power of the story behind it all. The story. I mean, imagine if someone asked you about Boulder, about living in the greater Denver area, and, and you started to recite elevation, uh, longitude, and latitude, and average rainfall, naming certain streets. I mean, somebody from the outside would be glazed over quickly. Because the power of the place is the people. It's the stories that each of us tell. It's the narrative. It's the, the drama that makes it compelling. So I wonder uh, this morning if we ought to have just a brief review of the story. It's a tale of immigration. The children of Jacob, most famously Joseph, who find themselves in a new foreign place called Egypt. Joseph came forced through slavery, his brothers through economic opportunity. But the story goes that they are there for hundreds of years, contributing meaningfully to this new country. In fact, we know in the book of Exodus and, uh, that Joseph is the one who saves the nation. Well, a new politician rolls into town, a new dictator who does not trust this immigrant community, forgets what they have done historically, believes that if a foreign power comes on the scene, they, in fact, will not be faithful nor patriotic. He revokes their citizenship, he makes them slaves, and he puts them into a period of brutal labor ripping their lives apart as they work 24 hours a day, seven days a week without a break on his pet project building great buildings to his glory. Even worse, he commands the military. Every little boy, born Jew, immediately is to be taken to the Nile River and drowned on the spot unthinkable. There's no more holidays. There's no more family ripped apart. 
the fabric of community absolutely destroyed. And by my count, this goes on for at least 80 to 100 years. Generations destroyed. Our tale takes a turn. God tapping an emancipator by the name of Moses on the shoulder. He's going to rescue these people. But uh, I want to suggest to you it's not so much a geographic story of Egypt to Canaan. But rather, it's sociology. It's about community. A group of people who've been treated as subhuman, as machines. Their lives in community completely thrashed. And God wishes to bring them into the rich fellowship that he dreams for them. This isn't the first time I think that Yahweh has been in this business. You remember Genesis? The earth? A formless mass shrouded in darkness. And God brings it into a good and very good, the first human community in the Garden of Eden. Here once again, a formless mass shrouded in darkness. And God says, I want to take you and I want to build a great community. I, I want to suggest to you this morning, this is the great theme of the scripture. From chaos to a good and very good garden, the first community. From chaos to a land flowing with milk and honey, metaphors for the quality of the fellowship there. Jesus, out of chaos, the disciples, oh, I'm going to teach you about how to form an abundant life together in community. Revelation, chaos, landing in streets of gold, not literal gold pavement, but rather a definition of the quality of the community. The major theme of scripture. This is the great story. And so then what are we to think of Leviticus? Of all of that litany of laws, that river of regulations, all the commandments, all of the morality, what are we to think of all of this content in light of this great drama? This summer, the Brian Four went to Springfield, Oregon, and with uh, my father-in-law went to a little place called the McKenzie Cafe. In fact, here's a picture of it, I think, here on the screen. The McKenzie uh, Cafe, um, just a little hole in the wall, a little nothing. I took this picture of the sign up close because it intrigued me. Notice the McKenzie Cafe, home cooking. Now, when you drop the G, <laughs> you know the food is going to be good, and it was. Here's some pictures of the plates at the various uh, tables, let me tell you. Absolutely amazing stuff. Mmm, look at that. This is really cool. The kids caught the got the, the bear pancake, and this alludes a little bit to just how friendly this place was. It was incredible. Two owners, Medi and Isabel, they've owned the place for 37 years. In fact, Medi himself waited on our table, and these were the mugs. Go back one. Look at this mug that's uh, uh, mass-produced. We love ya. I love everyone. Medi. You should get those mugs with Japheth's uh, little mug on it for the church here. I mean, you're branding everything else. Why not do that as well? But... Uh, Beautiful. And then here's a picture of Betty with the kids. People know each other in this restaurant. It's fellowship. 
it's a little, it's a little heaven on earth. You know, Eugene Peterson uh, writes this. He says, why church? Listen to this. So why church? The short answer is because the Holy Spirit formed it to be a colony of heaven in the country of death. Think about that. A little colony of heaven right here in a country of death. Isabel, the other owner, says, Maddie and I really believe in serving our customers and treating them well. Everyone responds to a smile or a hello and appreciates some kind of acknowledgement. Unfortunately, that seems to be missing from a lot of businesses today. We have great customers, she says. We have customers that I remember coming in here with their parents when they were two years old. And now they're bringing in their two-year-olds. Beautiful. Colony of heaven. The country of death. That's the church. I was enjoying this experience so much. But then I was startled. Shocked. Offended. For I noticed this sign in the front window of the McKenzie Cafe. We reserve the right to refuse service to anyone. What? I thought this was a nice place. I thought this was an open, rich community, a little heaven on earth. We re refuse the right to re refuse service to someone? This is ugly and mean. All those good feelings I had were dissipating, but then my mind started to turn, and I wondered, what caused Medi and Isabel to put this sign in their front window? What were the circumstances? And a whole bunch of things came to my mind, and I started to think, well, what are the behaviors that I could engage in that would get me kicked out of this place? And I could think of a lot. <laughs> Ways of treating the cook, the server. Ways of treating the other customers, the family. I could think of a whole bunch of things that would get me kicked out of that place. Huh. Leviticus, chapter 19. The Lord also said to Moses, say this to the entire community of Israel. You must be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Now, don't let your mind jump too quickly to the word holy is some individual enterprise. My private devotions, my personal holiness, I floss my teeth, I keep my nose clean, I am holy. I think we misunderstand biblical holiness when our minds go in that direction. Instead, watch this. Let me just give you several examples from Leviticus 19. From verse 3, each of you must show respect from your mother and father. If we're going to build a colony of heaven here, friends, moms and dads should be treated well. Or this, you must always observe my Sabbath days of rest. Remember, for a century, these people are machines. They are subhuman slaves. There's no holidays. There's no community time. I love what the great Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann says. He says of the Sabbath for them, it was about one thing above all else. Hear me. Neighborly engagement. Neighborly engagement. If we're going to build this community. We've got to be together a lot. Verse 11, do not steal, do not lie, 
Do not cheat one another. Do not cheat or rob anyone. Always pay your hired workers promptly. The way you treat your employees matters. Show your fear of God by treating the deaf with respect and not by taking advantage of the blind. The way we care for the other abled matters. Always judge your neighbors fairly. Do not spread slanderous gossip on Facebook or Twitter or behind someone's back. Do not try to get ahead at the cost of your neighbor's life. Do not nurse hatred in your heart. Confront your neighbors directly. Never seek revenge or bear a grudge, but love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 28, do not defile your daughter by making her a prostitute. One of many commands in the Pentateuch. Indicating, men, that women should be treated with respect fully as human beings in every regard. And I'm going to ask that you pray for me. This is a little of a side. Tonight, I have to fly out, and I apologize right when I'm done here. I'm going back to my local conference where we're having a big conversation about treating women fully, equally as human beings in pastoral ministry. <laughs> this from the ancient text. Show your fear of God by standing up in the presence of elderly people and showing respect for the aged. Do not exploit the foreigners who live in your land. They should be treated like everyone else. Do not use dishonest standards when measuring length, weight, or volume. Your scales and weights must be accurate. And on it goes. Medi and Isabel's son. There's some rules we've got to play by. There's some big ideas we've got to live into. Like Becky was saying earlier, if we're going to be great community, we have to be about big things. We have to raise the standard of how we react to one another. A few years ago, I, I read this book, the title Relational Holiness. The argument of the authors is that biblical holiness is relational holiness. It's not about proving that you can get your act together somehow to force God's love or to compel Christ to come again. Holiness is about the quality of the community we build together. A church, a colony of heaven, and a country of death. So how might we sum up all these Leviticus laws? What image, what idea that would grip us Something unforgettable, even provocative. There's a woman by the name of Rachel Yehuda, professor of psychiatry and neuroscience at Mount Sinai School of Medicine, raised the daughter of a rabbi, an observant Jew. And she has an idea. Now, I think this is appropriate since we're in the Pentateuch. Someone who teaches at Mount Sinai, the daughter of a rabbi, an observant Jew. She's done a lot of work on post-traumatic stress. And the fracturing of our community in the United States, our inability to heal one another with our hyper-individualism. She says there's, there, there's a single act. There is one thing that sort of explains our culture and all of its problems in just one way, one word. Littering. Littering, she says. Littering. It's a horrible thing to see. Because littering sort of encapsulates this idea that you're in it alone. That there isn't a shared ethos of trying to protect something shared. 
It's the embodiment of every man for himself. Literally. It made me think of Deuteronomy 23. Mark off in an area outside the camp for a latrine. We usually don't have this as a memory verse for kids. (laughs) Although it could be helpful, I suppose. Each of you must have a spade as part of your equipment. Whenever you relieve yourself, you must dig a hole with the spade and cover the excrement. The camp must be holy. Don't litter on the community in a single verse. I think that might encapsulate the whole of the law and the prophets. Don't litter on the community. Medi and Isabel sign in that front window, why so strict a warning? Don't litter on our beautiful community. We're trying to create some heaven on earth here. Don't litter on the beautiful community that God is trying to create. It's precious. It's beautiful. The camp must be holy. The American Boys Handy Book. 1882. There's the cover right there. Listen to this warning. Never join a camping party that has among its members a single peevish, irritable, or selfish person, or a shirk. Although the company of such a boy may be only slightly annoying at school or upon a playground, in camp, the companionship of a fellow of this description becomes unbearable. (laughs) But then it moves to the positive. The whole party should be composed of fellows who are willing to take things as they come and make the best of everything. With such companions, there is no such things as bad luck, rain or shine. Everything is always jolly. And when you return from the woods, strengthened in mind and body, you will always remember with pleasure your camping experience. Pleasurable community. Just two weeks ago, this Sunday, here's some photographs. Uh, We were, as a church, engaging in a work bee. You know what that is? Work bee around the church. Young and old, men and women, cleaning, restocking, in the sanctuary, in the classrooms, landscaping, polishing and fixing, having just a grand time together. Beautiful community as a local church. And you know what I thought? Colony of heaven. Colony of heaven. We recently just had an outpouring of so many more local church members in our congregation giving to the local church budget. 31 new giving units this year. Extraordinary. Everybody pulling together colony of heaven. We just pulled together to host a global leadership conference uh, just this week, invited over 100 people came from the business community. So many members of our church pouring into making this event possible. And I thought, colony of heaven. Every time our church sacrifices to serve the poor in our area, colony of heaven. 
invest in the project of Christian education, Colony of Heaven. Every time we reject gossip, but instead say that we must engage in productive, hopeful conversations of blessing face-to-face, Colony of Heaven. And when we reject bigotry and racism and sexism in any form, but instead lead into that great dream. There is no Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. We are all one in Jesus Christ, colony of heaven. And when we reject visions of God as capricious, distant, mean, and when we lay aside that malnourished theology called legalism, and trade it for the robust nutrition of a vigorous grace, I say, colony of heaven. What about you? I pledge here and now to commit my life to the imperfect but beautiful work of building a colony of heaven in this country of death.